When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're committed to living a healthier life, you might want to look into working herbs into your wellness routine. There's a reason people have trusted them for thousands of years. Nature's Way understands that nature is the ultimate problem solver, and they're constantly inspired by the power of nature. For example, their ginger root and slippery elm bark have been traditionally used for digestive support. And St. John's wort, holy basil, and ashwagandha can provide mood and stress support. And because Nature's Way sources from around the world and does a ton of comprehensive potency and quality testing in their state-of-the-art lab, you can be sure you're getting top-quality herbs. To learn more, visit naturesway.com. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben, and today we are here with uh, Noel the Collector Brown. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I didn't uh, do very well on that sounds, one. Uh, sounds like a serial killer. It does. It sounds a little darker. Sorry, Noel. I don't mean to paint you in a bad Collector. light. We'll think of some better nicknames. And listeners, of course, you can always uh, reply with a nickname for Scott, Noel, or myself. But today we are calling Noel the Collector Brown because today, Scott, you and I are returning to the world of car collections, but a different part of the world of car collections. Absolutely. And this one comes from a listener suggestion from a, uh, a longtime friend of the show, Rudy Smith. Mm-hmm. And Rudy wrote in recently, and I think we did read this one during a recent Nuts and Bolts episode. We I believe we, so, yeah. said we'd get to it, and here it is. Uh, we said uh, we were going to talk about car collections of the Chinese rich and famous, because Rudy wrote in and said, and I quote, <laughs> Considering all the concentrated wealth in China and the popularity of luxury cars there, it occurred to me that there must be at least one Chinese gajillionaire with a penchant for collecting fine cars. I don't know if there is, but maybe you can use your research mojo to find out. I wonder if the high luxury taxes there have anything to do with the inconspicuous nature of car collecting. Now, um, this brought to mind a few different cases. Now, Rudy sent a bunch of a uh, bunch of links as well that we can right. check out. Yeah, and uh, there were a number of interesting links there, of course. But we dug a you know in a different direction on some of these. And uh, man, I, I got to tell you, Ben, I started to look at all these and I started to read all the stories and I started to um, kind of digest what was happening here. And more than anything, I found a lot of blowback from people on forums that were just outright upset or angered about these car collections or these these uh these pristine versions of american right. cars headed over to china but i wonder would it be the same if you know these collections were to be scattered throughout the united states i mean would they have the same reaction or not i mean there's a lot to talk about here not sure. just necessarily one person that's collecting cars although 
did you say that you found somebody who may be a major collector in China? Is that right? Did you, did you, we found did, a couple. Did yeah. You, did you find a name? Because what you said intrigued me that, you know, this, uh, the, the one that we're going to talk about in particular is the Ratsoy collection that came from Canada. Mm-hmm. And he, he kept 100 cars. And I, th- I don't think I'm giving too much away here, but no. 100 cars is like the beginning of a major collection for somebody. And do we find out who bought that collection? And is that, is that one of the people that we know? Uh, I am still looking for that. Uh, okay. It's it's alluded to simply as a Chinese buyer. See, you're not alone in this case because I've looked for that as well, and I also could not find the name of the individual that purchased the Ratsoy collection. Now, I know that's probably out there somewhere. Someone knows who it is, but um, we we talked about this during our Nuts and Bolts episode. A lot of times during some of these bigger auctions, and I don't know if this happened during the uh, the microcar museum auction or whatever, but you know when a major collection comes up for sale, mm-hmm. at the back of the room there'll be somebody who – or front of the room sometimes – there are people who are on the phone with collectors that are not able to attend the, the show. In person. Yeah, so they're calling from sometimes here in the United States, sometimes uh, Canada, sometimes Australia, sometimes they're, they're mm-hmm. anywhere. They're anywhere in the world because as long as they get a phone collection and they know the auction's happening and they're, they're able to buy and import the cars, they have a possibility of buying it just like anybody else. And so sometimes you'll hear that an, an anonymous Chinese buyer has purchased this vehicle, you know, right. there's never a name given and, and not, not never, but usually there's not a name given and it happens more and more frequently recently. And a lot of people are taking note of that. Right. And it could also, one of the questions someone might ask and logically ask is, well, if it's anonymous, then how do they know the country of origin of this person? Well, the way they would know that is because of where the vehicles are being shipped. Sure. Yeah. And, so. that, and, also, that's not something that's like as classified. I mean, they don't want the collection. I understand that somebody who buys a priceless piece of art doesn't necessarily want to broadcast that that piece of art is now going to be stored in their home. Uh, that makes them a, a big right. target for a crime or for whatever, you know, for you know, some type of fraud. Or in one of their homes. Yeah, or one of their homes. That's right. So, you know, it, it's it's understandable they want to keep their anonymity. I get that. Uh, the, the, the country that it goes to, it seems like you could be outright with that information and just say where it's going to or – you know, who who made the call and not specifically who, but where the call came from. Mm-hmm. seems like that's that's reasonable information to put out there. I feel like that's not off off base. But, uh, you know, in general, the idea of anonymity or discretion is is huge for people buying stuff at auctions. And one one thing we noticed, I'm glad you mentioned the blowback about this at the very top, because I was surprised by how upset some people seemed to be i didn't i didn't understand because i i will tell you one thing after looking at some of the legal restrictions imposed by the chinese government chinese car collectors are putting in some serious work to get those vehicles over there absolutely they have to jump through a lot of hoops as you would imagine uh, trying to get the car into what's well, a communist nation yeah and uh, it's very difficult to import just about anything really and and I can imagine the stresses that they go through in order to import vehicles that were made in America uh, prior to a point when they weren't necessarily allowed to even have their own private vehicles. Because we found that out as we researched as well that right. um, there was a point, and maybe not, maybe maybe I'm alone here, Ben, but I didn't really know this when I when I started this uh, this this um, uh, research procedure here. Is that you know, prior to 1949, that China, if you lived in China, you weren't allowed to own a private vehicle. Uh, that was something that was reserved for 
uh, heads of state for military. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, I guess, what would you call it, just state-issued vehicles, really? Right, yeah, for transportation of goods. Now, of course, that's not to say, because we know corruption creeps into every government. So mm-hmm. that's not to say that people didn't have a quote-unquote government vehicle that was theirs and that they parked at their house. Oh, and I'm sure that happened often. There's, right. there's got to be cases or ways around that that, that yeah. happened. But um, that also gave rise to, um, I'm sure, that you know the uh, the motorized bicycle and scooter and all that. Mm-hmm. that. That's why that became even more critical in that time frame for that, for that nation. So because of these legal restrictions, you could argue fairly effectively that car culture was either um, was either kind of stymied or you could argue that it just took a very different direction. But that wasn't the only legal roadblock uh, currently, uh, or it had been uh, this way for a while. Uh, China was China had a lot of terrible automobile traffic. One of the last times one of the, one of the last times we mentioned uh, traffic in China, which which was a very interesting thing, is that China had. A three-day traffic jam, wasn't that? It was the Something world's like longest yeah. traffic jam at the time. And I believe we talked about it on air. But additionally, just the sheer amount of individual vehicles in, in urban environments is crazy. And there have been different uh, ways to – different approaches or attempts to mitigate this situation by, you know, putting uh, a different pay-to-drive lane up which no one uses, sure. or to uh, have a, a system uh, based on the license plate about when you can buy a car, when you can, when and what day you can drive it. Wow. Okay, so, so that's almost like watering restrictions here in the States. Right, yeah. yeah oh, we similar. have a, you know, like an odd even system for watering your lawn. But right. this is a driving your car situation with the with a license plate number indicating when you can and can't drive. And one of the most, right, one of the most uh one of the most pernicious or difficult uh, laws, at least from a car collector's perspective, is that eventually uh, authorities, based on all these traffic problems in cities across China, the authorities said that uh, if your vehicle is over 15 years old, you can't drive it because we're concerned about the pollution. Oh, my gosh. All right. So, so 15, it's just an outright age shutoff. And even if it still does pass their emission standards, uh, sorry, no go, right? So 15 years old, yep. you got to trade that in and trade up. And what do you do? You, you get a car that's maybe five years newer and then that's good for only, um, you know, five more years, right? right. Am, I, am I thinking of that right? Yeah, I guess right. If you, unless you get a brand new vehicle that, that would be good for 15 years, you're constantly having to start over again after that 15 year time limit is up. Right. But there, you know, this is something I want to open up to the listeners because, uh, I believe there have to be some exceptions, and I want to hear more about this because some of the collectors like Sun Jian and Lu Wenyao are owners of huge collections, right? Yeah, I mean hundreds of cars. Hundreds, yes, for sure. And they had in 2013, I want to say, October of 2013, they had a convoy of classic cars uh, depart the Great Wall – uh, to drive to Shanghai, and it was the Classic Cars China Challenge. Oh, cool. So um, that would be a, a super rarity, something that you would never, ever see there, um, because the cars that they own, some of them predate the 1949 uh, restriction for the right. private vehicles because yep. they're yep. imported now. Um, others that just simply weren't available to the public, I mean, cars that were, you know, the state vehicles that we talked about pre-1949, of course, 
but then other vehicles that you know just simply weren't available because they they haven't been imported in uh, mass, I guess. Right. Uh, but in the situation of being of going over to a museum, that's a that's a special situation, special circumstance that I'm sure that's exactly what we're talking about when you know say it's a it's a headache for someone to import uh, 100 cars from the uh, the Ratsoy collection in Canada over there. I'm sure that you know it's saying. Yeah, sure, they're over 15 years old. These are going to be museum cars. We're hardly ever going to drive them. The only time we'll drive them is maybe during a parade, maybe during uh, you know, a situation like that convoy that you talked about, right. to the, uh, driving to the auto show, um, you know, to Shanghai, um, or um, you know, in situations where they just want to uh, get them out and stretch their legs a little bit. But it's probably limited um, in the way that you know, supposedly our historic plates are limited here in the United States in a lot of cases where, you know, you're allowed a certain number of driving days a year if you have that, you know, that that uh, that sticker on your plate that says it's a historic vehicle. Right. Or, uh, you know, the limited situations, but everybody kind of goes around that. Anyway. I still have, yeah, I have yet to, see, that's one of those laws that I have yet to see anybody busted for. Yeah, it's never been really enforced, I don't think. Before we dive into some of these collections, can uh, can we talk a little bit about that classic car challenge? I yeah. just think it's interesting. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. All right. So this is a classic rally tour, which brings us to something else we should talk about, too. Uh, but it's about six days, 1,800 kilometers, and it has uh, – it's approved by the uh, – by FIVA, the Federation Internationale des Vehicules Anciens. Uh, Very nice, Ben. Really? That was terrible. Well, you took us there. <laughs> took us there with that accent. I took us somewhere. Uh, and the Classic Vehicle Union of China, CVUC, uh, they they drive from Beijing to Shanghai in six days. Uh, they've altered the route a little bit over time. This had two million spectators. It ran in 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014. Uh, the, the festival is something that people love just to see this motorcade because like you said it's not something you see every day two million spectators Mm -hmm. that's huge that's huge well i mean given the numbers of the country's population it's it's believable well that's tiny then yeah it's pocket change right but so all all of that just to say that we we know there is a market for these vehicles uh we know that people enjoy seeing them and driving them well, at least watching them, and a lot of people want to drive them. And we know that some uh, people who are particularly successful in China have been able to amass some fantastic collections, and a few of these people have also made their collections part of museums so that an, an ordinary person who can't buy 200 cars can go look at them. Sure. So some people are, are gathering, let's say, their collection of 10 uh, with other people who have a collection of 10 or 15 sure. or, or 5 or whatever, and they make one massive collection out of that. So they're, they're combined. That happens in, in our, our museums here in the States as well. You know, these are on loan from, you know, so-and-so, and that happens often. But, um, you know, in this case, you know, with China, that I mean, over throughout the entire country, I think the Hemmings article that I read about this says that the classic car museums of China is limited to something like, you know, like 13 displays total. And some of these are only... Um, it's still at this point ideas, you know, they're going to right. create this museum or they're going to house this collection, you know, here at this museum. They don't have a, a building for it yet, but they have a collection mm-hmm. and uh, no place to put it. Or some of them are simply names that no one has really even like taken a photograph at this place and, and verified that it even exists. But they say, 
uh, yeah, this this place exists, and there's a small collection of 25 vehicles, but it's way out in the middle of nowhere in kind of a warehouse-looking type place. Uh, but again, 13, and this is from somebody who, you know, again, according to Hemmings, yeah. is a, um, uh, well, I guess he's not a historian, but, you know, somebody who puts together lists of, of all-known collections. You know, somebody who uh, really digs in and does all the research. His name is Eric Van Ingren Schau, or Chanel. Um, and he has, uh, he's from France, I believe. And again, he put together this list and it's really of just 13 museums or public collections. Um, some of them that which are closed, by the way, and others, again, just a name. There's really no photographic proof that they even really exist, but they're, they're said to be out there. So almost like rumors that there's a collection out there. Mm-hmm. So, so it's very rare to find a, a true collection of cars, um, in China. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right, but 
you can find them. Just because they're rare doesn't mean they don't exist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this this article came up with um, you know thirteen museums or public collections. Some of these you can access, as yeah. you said. Uh, so there's the Beijing International Automotive Expo Center, which uh, looks so weird and cool. The 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 um, building itself. Uh, it was currently under construction, expected to open in 2010. Yeah, see, now we're talking about something in 2008 that was shown to be partially finished. Now, this is the way a lot of these are, Ben. This is in 2008, it was shown to be partially finished with without the, uh, you know, the the, uh, the vast parking decks and all that, that, you know, they show right. around it and everything. Those weren't even there. So, again, some of these are uh, maybe a little bit of, um, oh, what do you call that? Uh, vaporware? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say vaporware. That's right. Yeah, you got the term exact. Well, they did, uh, you know, of course, they did uh, finish constructing it, and so the, they do have the Auto Show 2015 there. Oh, it's really it's really done now. Yeah. Total. Oh, that's yeah. great news because, uh, you know, all I've seen so far are just renderings of what it was supposed to look like. I hope it, uh, I hope it's as, uh, as beautiful as what these renderings are because it really does look like a nice place to go. Well, let's look at something uh, a little further down the list, something that was not uh, just a rendering while I was there. And something that's very interesting, at least uh, uh, to me as well, uh, and that is the Lu Wenyao Classic Car Museum. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Now, this one, I, I read a separate article from uh, Motor Trend in which uh, the author of this of this article went to Beijing and asked somebody who lived right there, you know, all about this museum, and they said, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And then finally, uh, they, they, you know, over... You know, again, probably language barrier going on here as well, but they were trying to determine where this place was, what it looked like. What the, mm-hmm. you know, finally they they narrowed it down to this one region. The author went out, found the place, and said that it was kind of strange because it it looked like just a a, a relatively nondescript um, gray museum um, uh, warehouse rather that houses this this collection of cars, and I believe it has almost two hundred cars. Um, but it has a lot of things from like like old Russian vehicles, like Zills and mm-hmm. uh, Moscoviches and and rocket launchers and, and BMW motorbikes and stuff like that. Um, a lot of a lot of domestic cars too. Yeah, yeah, a few a few of those. Yeah, a few of those. But they also have some old American stuff, which is a surprise. Right. The Rolls Royce that was owned by Lennon, and a bunch of cars that were just kind of parked outside all around. You know, like they don't have like the the, the greatest of facilities. And when I looked at photos of this, because he posted a ton of photos. Yeah. Uh, from inside there. And the thing is, you know, he said he paid his uh, his money, whatever it was, I don't know, $10 or something, went in to see the collection. He's the only one in the museum. It's like he's it's, it's basically deserted. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, if you're the only one in the museum, you got some pretty good opportunity to take some really nice photos. And there's a bunch of them online, again, in this Motor Trend article. Pretty good collection, an unusual collection. And I'll tell you this, these cars are not the pristine... Uh, you know, museum quality vehicles that you normally see. It They're looks not like concours level. Oh yeah. no, no! In fact, a lot of them have you know dents and some rust on them. Uh, you know, they're, they're not all completely beat up by any means, but. They're not exactly what you would expect to find in a museum. And, well, they're and, they're in the process of being restored. I mean, the the owner is working. To be fair, on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah to be fair, and the guy. I mean, the guy's working on the cars outside. You know, he doesn't even have like an inside garage, so he's working on them outside the, the museum, and he drags them back inside. Right. But. But you know, honestly, it's a it's a really nice collection. There's a lot of really interesting vehicles there, but a little bit rough. It's almost as if you're looking at cars that were um, in a in a you know in an American museum in the basement, you know, like the basement tour stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit rough around the edges. Still a nice example, but not pristine 
museum quality like we're, we're accustomed to. Yeah. And uh, this is, uh, to me, this is an interesting story because it feels like a labor of love. Yeah. Uh, which I, you know, when I, when I see stuff like that, it, it makes me, um, it makes me root for whomever's doing it. Well, it's so hard to get these cars in, as yeah. you mentioned, because like th- this guy, I mean, what's his name? Lou, Lou Wenyo. Uh-huh. Uh, he says that, um, here's a quote in another article from USA Today. He says, I, <laughs> he says, I, um, something about the Beijing traffic police were giving him hassle over the Jeep, over a Jeep that he had. And they said, well, your car has no doors. It's too dangerous to drive. And he said, well, it's the, the original design. It's a World War II Jeep. And, and mm-hmm. they designed it like that to save money. And they said, well, sorry, that's just, you can't do that here. Um, so he's unable to keep that vehicle, or at least he couldn't keep, he couldn't drive it on the street anyways. Um, so they're very strict about things like that there, where, you know, here, uh, it's a little bit more lenient. But he, imagine trying to import cars where it seems like everything is a stumbling block. You know, every, right. every little thing you would have to somehow get around. And that's what makes it difficult. And this guy, yeah, you're right, Ben. He's collected, I think it's in the ballpark of uh, 200 cars at this point. Mm-hmm. So uh, a major, major collection, really. I mean, that's pretty good. That's a good size. And with the roadblocks and the stumbling blocks that he has, uh, even more impressive. And I have a little bit of uh, of news on that that we could save till the end, if you'd like. Sure. So, and on a, and a futurist, future thing. Oh, right? very good. Yeah. Uh, so we've talked about the challenge. Let's talk about some more museums. Well, there's the Shanghai Automobile Museum, Ben. We can talk about that a little oh, bit if you'd like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, this is a pretty good collection here. Um, it's open since 2007. It claims to be the oldest operating public automobile automobile museum in China. I'm having a difficult time saying automobile museums today for some reason. Is it the new rural juror? <laughs> I think it might be, yeah. Automobile museum. <laughs> yeah, it's a part of the Shanghai International Auto City. Uh, this, this has... Uh, well, it was around 40 cars for a while, and it may have expanded. Well, they had 40 cars from the Blackhawk collection. Ah, uh, that's what it was. Which is impressive. So they, they started with that and built it up from there. Right. And the uh, the museum itself, you can you can visit uh, any time from 9.30 to 4 on Saturdays and Sundays, if you're interested in that. <laughs> if you happen to be in Shanghai at this moment. Which, right. you know what? There's a chance. They're closed on Mondays. Worldwide audience, there's always a chance. And people travel there, of course. I mean, it's a communist nation, but people do travel there. Uh, Kristen Conger went from uh, Stuff Mom Never Told You. Mm-hmm. She went uh, last year, spent yeah. some time there, Yeah, had a good time. Uh, um, her and her fiancé went uh, to the Great Wall, I think. Now, there's uh, the the Auto Museum itself has five pavilions. They've got a history pavilion, a tech pavilion, a brand pavilion, antique cars, which is going to be super interesting to a lot of people there, mm-hmm. and a temporary exhibition that just rotates through. Um, I, I bet this is impressive when you go there. I'm sure mm-hmm. it is. So it's probably one worth your time. Oh yeah, I'd absolutely be. It's on my list to go. Uh, the other, the other uh, museums here. Let's see. What, what are some other ones that we should talk? Well, about? Well, there's also there's a couple here that uh, look like they're again. I'm looking at renderings of them. So uh, I, I don't I don't know if they actually happened or not. Uh, one one of those would be the Nanjing Museum. Yeah, yeah, the Nanjing Auto Museum, uh, called the Modern Goodwood Parking Garage, hmm. uh, designed by award-winning designer uh, Francesco Gatti. Uh, it's supposed to be dedicated to the automobile, with the space itself also used being used as a uh, parking spot. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You uh, you start at the top of this museum and wind your way down through the through the exhibits. 
Um, it seems like I've heard of other museums like this. There was one in Flint, Michigan, Autorama, uh-huh. I think it was. Or, oh, no, is that right? And maybe I have to I'll have to look that one up as we talk here. But it's closed down now. You can't go to that one in Flint. But um, interesting design. I think it's kind of smart in that way. Yeah, and I love I love the design of it. However, the fact of the matter is that the Nanjing Auto Museum has not yet opened. Yeah, it's just been uh, a twinkle. In the eyes of Chinese car lovers. Oh, you know what, Ben? I got to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Oh no, yeah, go I, ahead. I just remembered the name of that uh, that exhibit that I was talking about in Flint that, uh, that shut down. It was called Auto World, and it closed about six months after the grand opening. So it was a it was a terrible failure, but uh, but it had the same design in that you would spiral through the uh, through the exhibits, and it was it was clever in a way. I mean, cool. it really it really was smart. It was a smart way to do it. Where do you want to go next here? I feel like we can laundry list some museums, but I'd also like to at least take a break for a second and talk about a private collection that I think is really Let's cool. Let's do that right now. All right. So uh, there is a fellow named Eddie Yao in Hong Kong, and he, Scott, happens to own uh, one of the largest Pagani collections in the world. Ooh, that's an expensive collection. I mean, mm-hmm. to own one Pagani is a big deal. Right. Uh, he has uh, a Zonda R, a Zonda F, a Zonda F Roadster, two Zonda Sinks, uh, the, and he also has a Mercedes-Benz, a CLK GTR Coupe. Yeah, I figured that was just the tip of the iceberg on this guy. So he lives in Hong Kong, though, right? Uh-huh. All right. That's one of his places. I don't mean to cut you off. I mean, mm-hmm. do you have a, a list of vehicles that he has, or do you want to keep talking about other stuff? Because Hong Kong is an interesting place to own cars like that. Yeah, I'll just do a list of a couple other vehicles that he has. He has uh, he has two of those uh, CLK GTRs, uh, Ford GT40, uh, Porsche Cup Racers, Lamborghini, uh Several, a variety of Ferraris, F50, 288 GTO, Enzo, FXX. All right, Rudy, there's your more. Ga- there's your gajillionaire, Rudy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because uh, I think I know what you might, I think I know what you might be about to say. Where, where are you going with this? The, the crowding issue. So let's say that you you head out for the uh, night on the town in Hong Kong in your Ford GT40. Uh-huh. What are you gonna? What are you doing exactly? You're gonna have a thousand scooters all around you, first of all, or you're gonna have a bunch of little um, uh, commuter cars, you know, micro cars or whatever. Not micro, but you know, compact cars. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That is a not so great situation for driving a big, very expensive vehicle through a crowded Hong Kong city. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does he do that? And and where does he keep them? I mean, where do you keep? It? Let's say that he's got. Um, I'm gonna ballpark this. Let's say he's got twenty cars or more. Okay. Where do you keep those in Hong Kong? That's a that's a that's a Prime, uh, you know, the, the prime location for parking. I'm sure. I mean, it's mm-hmm. got to be um, at a premium to yeah. park even one vehicle. So, how do you park 20, 25 vehicles in a city like that? Ah, uh, there is a there is a place for it. You see, Eddie Yao keeps his cars at his his prestigious supercar collection uh, in a place called SPS. It's a uh, it's in Hong Kong. It's a dealer that sells supercar and luxury cars. It also provides maintenance services, repair, car care, and car storage uh, in Hong Kong. So uh, if you check out this place, SPS, and, and Rudy, I think you'll um, – I think if you haven't seen this yet, for some reason, you'll, you'll really enjoy the pictures. These are, these are cars that are closely packed together with, like, enough room to walk between them, mm-hmm. you know, but you have to do some valet tricks to move them all so, out. Partially get in the door. 
<laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and, squeeze in. Uh, you can see just some amazing stuff here, and they're all they're all maintained very well. What's and the name of the place again, Ben? SPS. SPS, and it's in Hong Kong. Uh-huh. And this guy's name is Eddie Yao. Mm-hmm. Um, is Eddie? Do we know what Eddie Yao does, or do we not? Eddie Yao. Let me guess. Let me guess. Guess. Is he a music producer? No. Oh. No, but that's a good guess. Uh, I think you'll like this more. He is uh, a race car driver. Oh, race car. No Mm -hmm. kidding. No kidding. My second guess was going to be import-export. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My first guest was a legitimate businessman. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. People who describe themselves as a legitimate businessman <laughs> are usually not that flashy and usually... Uh, not legit. Yeah, my title is definitely a businessman. Yeah, but he's uh yeah, no, he is a 
uh, well-known Hong Kong racer. He won in Fuji, uh, was a, uh, title contender, uh, on Asia racing team until the last race in Macau. Hmm. Um, that is a name I'm unfamiliar with, completely unfamiliar with it. So I'll have to, uh, we'll have to dig into that. Yeah, but he's a well-known racer in the area. He must do quite well for himself. He must uh, do quite well. Wow. And he is a Pagani fan, so. Apparently. Yeah, so this is, that's just one example of a, a private car collection. Now those, of course, those are supercars far more than they are classic cars. Yeah, you so know what I mean? He's not likely the buyer of the Ratsoy collection because. No, no, no. Uh, it's just not his game. It's not his style, not his, uh, not his bag, baby. Yeah, SBS also, uh, supports him in the Asian Supercar Cup. Ah. So, uh, they have, like, you know, can I just point out one other yeah. quick thing here? And this is, uh, it's not really all that important or consequential or anything, but, but you may see some really oddball vehicles that are stuffed into some of these collections that you wouldn't normally see in a museum. So, that's true. You know, at the, uh, the one we just talked about, the, uh, was it the Lu Wenyao exhibit? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cars, yeah. You know, places like that. I don't know if, you know, specifically that one or not, but you might find like a mid eighties Cadillac or something like that. You know, that's not really all that remarkable here on the United States, but, there, it's an oddity. It's something that you don't typically see, and that right. that garners attention. Just as you know, something uh, from over there that's relatively ordinary would would garner attention here in the states in in the same museum or in a different museum, but um, in a similar way. Mm-hmm. You know, a a, um, a right hand drive vehicle will get a lot more attention, I guess, than a left hand drive vehicle that that's similar. You know, I can see what you say. Yeah, you know, it appears yeah. ordinary, but hey, there's a left hand or a right hand drive version of it. Um, you might. Peek your head in and take a look at it and sure. give it a second glance, but yeah. even though it's not terribly remarkable in any other way. Um, so, you know, it just depends on, the you know, where you are and what you don't commonly see, and that's what makes these museums interesting. Yeah, and there are several other museums in China that we didn't get to. The uh, The Beijing Motor Museum comes highly recommended. Mm-hmm. You'll see some unusual cars there. And also for a lot of travelers, uh, Beijing, it, it might be the closest one to you. Yeah. There's uh, even a film studio car collection called yes. the MI Film Studio Car, Cole- mm-hmm. car Collection. Um, it's just some strange stuff, Ben. Yeah. Uh, so we highly recommend checking these out. And I'd love to, I'd love to again hear anybody who's got a lead on that mysterious buyer of one of the best Canadian car collections. Uh, so, let us know about that. We're about to wrap it up. Oh, wait. That's, oh my gosh. I almost forgot. Yeah. I've got one more thing. One more thing. All right, Ben. So hit me with it. What is it? So this year, uh, news broke that China is going to discuss lifting the longstanding ban on importing historic vehicles. The story arrived to us in April, opening the world's biggest market to classic cars. So if they revoke those regulations, it'd be huge because the appetite for classic cars is rising dramatically. And this would have a global influence on uh, pricing. Wow, it's big, it's, that's a big deal. It yeah. really is. I mean, to open up a market like that. And, you know, if prices had been faltering on certain types of vehicles in the U.K., suddenly there's a new market for them, you know, a new place to kind of shop these around and maybe say – uh, you know, th- this is uh, this is valuable, quite valuable. Sure. Fact. And, uh, you know, it might boost some of that back up again. Right. And uh, so there's a place, the CVUC, again, the Classic Vehicle Union of China, uh, they reckon they have um, about 400 members as of 2011. Classic Vehicle Union of China. Yeah, which is a little bit strange because 
they these people own classic cars, but the importation of it is illegal. Um, how do they get around the 15, resale? How do they get around the fifteen-year thing as well? It must have it must have been changing, but uh, and maybe it depends upon how the vehicle is qualified. Maybe that's part of the reason they go to a museum because you can't import something to resell it. Ah, a, used, a used car like that, and there's the loophole. And maybe yeah, maybe that's it. Um, but I'd love to hear more about this because although I'm fascinated by it. I feel like there's a lot that uh, there's a lot more to the story. Oh, definitely. It feels like there's there's big chunks of this missing, and I I, I would love to dig into this even more and mm-hmm. find out what we're missing exactly because uh, you know this stuff changes uh, monthly, I guess, not daily but monthly, right? Um, and of course, you know, we've gone back uh, decades even in this in this situation. So you know, we've talked about stuff that's happened you know ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago. Um, it's all changing quickly. So this right. is this is an interesting, uh, I guess we can call it a relatively new market for them, um, you know, the classic car market. Um, it's interesting to see the way this thing all kind of shakes out, you know, where, where prices are going to go as a result. Yeah. Um, what's going to be allowed, what's not going to be allowed. I, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with the way they um, they police the whole thing over there. Yeah. I'm also, I'm wondering uh, about the, concerns for existing classic car markets because i've heard some people saying what's going to happen is that they're going to drive up the prices dramatically all these new people because the people will treat it just as a stable investment Mm -hmm. uh so if you have you know 10 people trying to buy the same car instead of two yeah but you can't look at an automobile as a stable investment really i mean those things they fluctuate so dramatically but I see what you mean. It's 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 dramatically changing the entire environment. They're going to reset the uh, reset the bar. Yeah, and uh, I you know I'm interested to see how it shakes out. I think that people should be allowed to invest in a collection if they want to. You know what I mean? It should be a level playing field. Yeah, Ben. But that's probably part of what's uh, you know the problem with living in a, a communist run country is that there's a lot of heavy handed rules that. Are, are specifically set against something like this, you know, bringing in these, uh, these quote, Western ideas, you know, it, but it, even though it's an, an automobile that was, you know, built 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, I, I see what you're, I see what you're saying. Uh, one thing though is that we have to remember classic cars are kind of like land, you know, kind of like what people used to say about real estate. They're not making any more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, except out in the Middle East, right? <laughs> uh, where the build, uh, we're building those islands. Now that I think about it, China is actually building some artificial islands in the South China Sea. The analogy is moot. Yeah, the analogy is ruined. Uh, but, but, uh, what, what we can say is that for the possibility of a much larger market for a smaller and smaller number of, uh, products, I guess if we want to look at classic cars that way, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how the next few years play out. Absolutely. So uh, we'd like to hear from you listeners, especially your thoughts on this. Good thing, bad thing, why? Uh, have you visited any of these Chinese car collections? Let Scott Knoll and I know. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter. Check out every web, every podcast, excuse me, we've ever done at our website, carstuffshow.com. Got any one more thing, Scott? Uh, no, I was just going to say, uh, how much of this nationalism do you really think should, should come into play here as well? That's you know, a if good you have question. An, if you have an opinion on that, uh, because I'm really interested in that. You know, we mentioned it a few times in this podcast, and I'd like to know how our listeners kind of shake out in this whole thing. 
Um, is it really that big of a deal if, a, if an American-made car goes over to China and, you know, lives in a collection over there? Because we have Chinese cars here in our collection. Sure. We have uh, French cars here. We have German cars here, Italian yeah, cars. British, yeah. And, and I don't see them really protesting that those pieces of property are here now. It's it's just part of a bigger collection. And that happens. It's it's part of uh, it's, it's part of what makes this whole hobby, this whole thing interesting is that, you know, you get this diversity, this, this sharing of mm-hmm. vehicles back and forth across borders and – I guess maybe now that China has, uh, has in a way opened its borders to other, other nations, you know, importing cars and, and allowing things like the, you know, the Ratsoy collection to go over there. Um, it just might make it a lot more interesting for everybody, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, my thing is if the car is in a collection where it's being cared for and maintained, then isn't that Good. Yeah, that's that good. Worthwhile? And also, you know, the the idea behind a whole collection going somewhere. Is it worse to be scattered, you know, among, you know, one here, one there, or should it remain together? I mean, it's kind of nice that 100 of those, you know, those cars are staying together. I know that there's still many of them that will be scattered, you know, the Ratsoy collections that have sure. been scattered. Sure, But uh, But it's nice to know that, you know, there's a, a large chunk of them that have remained together. There's something... I guess something comforting about that. <laughs> well, let it, let us know what you think. We're interested to see. Uh, we're interested to see your thoughts and and what you think the future of classic car collecting will be if the if there is this large new market that has opened up. Uh, you can tell us about it directly on all our social media, or you can take a page from Rudy's book and send us an email directly. We are car stuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. If you're committed to living a healthier life, you might want to look into working herbs into your wellness routine. There's a reason people have trusted them for thousands of years. Nature's Way understands that nature is the ultimate problem solver, and they're constantly inspired by the power of nature. For example, their ginger root and slippery elm bark have been traditionally used for digestive support. And St. John's wort, holy basil, and ashwagandha can provide mood and stress support. And because Nature's Way sources from around the world and does a ton of comprehensive potency and quality testing in their state-of-the-art lab, you can be sure you're getting top-quality herbs. To learn more, visit naturesway.com.